Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hemp Resents. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to hemp present about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. Welcome to Hemp Present, a weekly radio show where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat prohibition one interview at a time and advocating for the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant, join me for a weekly reefer radio rebellion against prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers, and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, and reform movement, and beyond. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest, celebrating its 25th anniversary and found at hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book Protestable, a 20-year retrospective of Seattle Hemp Fest from AHA Publishing, also found at hempfest.org. Transmitting directly from inside a hempcrete-fortified counterculture stronghold perched precariously within an undisclosed remote (laughs) enclave somewhere within the Soviet of Seattle, my goal is to expose the dark moral crevasses of prohibition to the living light of Toker Truth. My guest today on Hempresent is community activist, attorney, and former mayor of the city of Seattle, Mike McGinn, who will be joining me in about 120 seconds. This is my 25th year with the Seattle Hemp Fest, one of the world's largest and most influential annual volunteer protest events, and my 20th year as executive director. While Hempfest is unquestionably being somewhat institutionalized as a Seattle special event, it remains an aberration and an anomaly in that it is still to this day a somewhat rogue, insurgent, urban protest phenomenon, and assumingly in many ways a hot potato for local government. And it would be for any local government because of the sheer size of the event coupled with its controversial theme and activities. When I started with the group, I was committed to making Hempfest an organization that has no human enemies and that has a laser focus on attacking issues, not personalities, policies, not people. I also came to want Hempfest to be a creative alternative to some of the traditional methods of protest that I was beginning to feel were sometimes not all that effective, sometimes divisive, perhaps even counterproductive or easy for some people to dismiss or marginalize. I eventually developed a vision of a community protest event that could generate revenue for the organization, its suppliers, and its community, 
and which could involve a community beyond the usual suspects associated with local protest events. As Hempfest progressed, I saw opportunities to try and build bridges between local law enforcement and the cannabis community, and an effort to heal some of the damaging societal wounds generated by prohibition, deep wounds that have the potential to create casualties on both sides. I saw an opportunity to provide the community volunteers which came forth a chance to participate in something for them to believe in, to strive for, while gaining both a sense of community through networking and also a chance to perhaps be exposed to some skills they might be able to take forward into their private lives. But most importantly, with HempFest, my colleagues and I stumbled upon an opportunity to both impact local, regional, and national cannabis policy by proving to everyone just how many people there were willing to come to HempFest and out themselves as supporters of the herb. It is impossible to deny over 100,000 people safely and nonviolently standing for reform year after year after year without incident. The Seattle Hemp Fest is a demonstration against America's pot laws, but it's also a demonstration of the fact that cannabis community is as professional, as creative, and as talented as any other community when given half a chance. I'm very grateful for the respect for the First Amendment that has been displayed by our city government over the 25 years that Seattle Hempfest has been touting its message of responsibility and reform. I'm extremely honored to have one of my all-time favorite city leaders in the virtual studio with me today. Mike McGinn is the former mayor of the city of Seattle. He served as mayor from January 1, 2010 to December 31, 2013, and he's been gracious enough to take time out to join me today. Welcome, Mayor McGinn, to Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio. Glad to be here, Viv. I just want to say it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. As you know, I'm a big supporter. We're from the same generation. We're only a year apart in age. And I can't tell you how exciting it was at the time to have a fellow community organizer as the mayor of my city. Mike, what projects excite you these days? Do you have any, anything going on well, you'd like to touch I, I on just, now that you're back in the private sector? I just want to say I loved your intro. It was awesome. I have my own podcast, You, Me, Us Now with Mike McGinn. You can find it on iTunes. I still work on climate issues, which is something I did before I was mayor, and, you know, just general all-around pot stirring when I get the chance. So I'm enjoying life. Awesome. I am definitely going to have to check out your podcast. You said not long ago on KUOW Radio, and I'm going to paraphrase that, like alcohol, marijuana is something that should be regulated, not treated as a criminal activity, and that you believed that marijuana could be used as a cash crop to possibly offset the city's financial problems. Can you expand a little bit on the cash crop statement a little bit? In what way? You know, that's interesting because I never actually looked at marijuana as a way to help balance the budget for the city. I thought that the arguments around, you know, just respecting public opinion on the matter, number one, number two, the way in which it's, you know, really it's just the criminalizing, it just doesn't work. It takes a tremendous amount of resources from the city that could be better used for other purposes. Now, having said that, I do think that there's something to be said for having businesses in the city that become known outside of our borders as being good businesses. And, you know, that can be good for our local economy in the long run, too. Would you support the idea of allowing lounges in public places to happen where tourists, for example, or, you know, albeit uh, maybe homeless people could go to have a place to imbibe? You know, I think, yes, I do. And I think that there's an issue here in that, you know, the way the law is written, it basically public consumption is illegal, you know, kind of like an open carry law, like you can't drink alcohol in a park in most parks, for example. But there's a lot of landlords that aren't going to support people smoking in their apartments. So you have to have some way to allow people to do that. 
And there are some public health issues, obviously, with secondhand smoke that you have to deal with as well. But I think we should be open-minded on how to do that. And I know that when I was mayor, uh, one of my staff persons was working with the Liquor Control Board on, on how to do that. And, of course, there's a lot of medical marijuana patients living in public housing who exactly. have, have a real challenge on how to take their medicine. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of people who would, you know, benefit from that. They may not be able to do that in their homes for whatever reason or, you know, wherever they're living. And maybe it can help remove some of that, you know, idle smoking out in public that bother people. There are people who express concerns about seeing people smoking in the alley or smoking on the street. And so, you know, there's got to be a third place here that isn't one's home. Seattle's facing new challenges as the fastest growing city in America as density and gentrification increase with development. And I can't tell you I've ever seen so many cranes in the city in my life. You recently said in a different interview that cities are becoming laboratories for new ideas. What did you mean by that? Well, I think what we're seeing is a return to the cities. You know, if you look in the post-war era with the automobile becoming, you know, everybody owns an automobile, maybe two. And of course, it was never everybody. But with the growth of suburbia, with real fears about living near black people or Latino people or the like, we saw cities empty out and it was really bad for cities. And so cities were often a place where people could go because they were away from other people, where artists could go and be in a warehouse that was empty and not bugging anybody else, or where people who were down and out could go and you know, there wasn't an issue. That's totally flipped now with the way the economy is and with rising inequality in America and with changing tastes. People want to live in cities again. And that's a hugely difficult issue if we don't figure out how to accommodate the numbers of people that want to live here and accommodate the people who've been here, the folks who want to live in walkable neighborhoods, who need to live near transit to get where they need to go, you know, as well as supporting creative types. So the issues of you know, forcing out lower income people, the issues of, you know, breaking up neighborhoods is a serious one. I really think we've got to start thinking about cities in a different way than we have in the last 50 years. And that means we're going to have to be welcoming to more people and be open to building a lot more housing in the city to accommodate them and lots of different kinds of housing to accommodate people. You know, one of the challenges is sometimes when you get so resistant to change that we're not willing to deal with change that we end up putting obstacles that prevent us from doing good things. In order to prevent bad things, they prevent people from doing good things. I think we just need to get a little looser and more accepting that we're going to have to accommodate people living in the city in different ways than we used to. When you won election in November of 2009, Washington was coming on full bore as a regional Wild West of medical marijuana. And in July of 2011, you signed a Seattle-specific medical marijuana bill, similar to the one that our governor, uh, former Governor Christine Gregoire vetoed, your bill allowed for the licensing of marijuana dispensaries within Seattle. What are a few of the overarching concerns that your administration had regarding the proliferation of dispensaries in the city? And what advice would you have for other mayors across America that are likely to be presented with similar challenges as reform efforts continue? Well, you know, Seattle was in a really interesting place. You know, we had obviously marijuana was still illegal at the federal level. And At the state level, medical marijuana was legal, but not recreational. But the city itself had, through voter initiative, made recreational use of, you know, prosecuting people for possessing small amounts of marijuana, its lowest law enforcement priority. It was essentially legal for recreational use in practice, if not in law. 
So we were in this funny in-between place, which I think was really hard on everybody. It was hard on the businesses. It was hard on the police. You know, when do they enforce? When do they not enforce? And what we wanted to do was just to try to normalize it, you know, try to bring it into the fold and demonstrate to other places that this is, you know, a normal economic activity that we need to, you know, regulate appropriately. So where can somebody grow marijuana? You know, what part of town could they do that in? Could people grow at home? Could people grow it like vegetables in their backyard? Where could a medical marijuana outlet open up? And part of the reason for our concern over that, one of the biggest concerns was that because it was in this gray area, you know, things like grow homes, places where people were growing a lot of marijuana for distribution in the illegal trade were often targets for criminal activity. And we needed to you know, get rid of prohibition so that we could deal with the violence associated with the growing and selling of marijuana. So I felt like we were pushing the envelope with that law. We were trying to normalize it. We we're trying to bring it out into the daylight and say, you know, we want law-abiding businesses. We want respectable businesses. And we want to treat this that way because medical marijuana is now legal at the state level. And we want a bureaucracy that knows how to deal with somebody who comes to the door and says, I, I want to sell medical marijuana in the city. So that, that was the thought process. I am speaking with former Seattle Mayor Mike McGinn. We're going to take a very quick pause for the cause because there's flaws in the laws. And hear a word from our sponsors. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're just getting started with Mike McGinn. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. From high atop Mount Soldad in San Diego, California, 100 feet above sea level. Good morning. It's good news with cannabis nurse Heather. This plant is amazing. Positive change is happening. We did it. No matter who you are, you can make a positive impact on the world. I would rather be illegally alive than legally dead. And that quote helped to give you strength. Nurse Heather is only on CannabisRadio.com. Good morning, Cannabis Nurse Heather. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we are back on Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio with Mike McGinn. Mike, you were one of the only mayors in America that I was aware of who appeared to be supportive of the Occupy Movement's platform, even going as far as to offer protesters a place to sleep in City Hall. Thank you for that. Now we're witnessing two insurgent candidates for president who challenge the status quo to a degree that we've never seen before. At the same time, the Black Lives Matter movement, Oscars Too White movement is growing. In some ways, it's starting to feel like 1965 a little bit. What do you think's going on? Are we on the verge of some form of social and political realignment? 
I think we are. You know, something is going on here. And I think the Occupy movement and the Black Lives Matter movement did it. I, I think about this topic a lot. And I, I think part of the problem, personally, I think there's a big difference between the two parties. But even so, even though I support the Democratic Party. Not, um, much, not as much of a difference as there could be, right? Well, I think that there's a, a problem when, you know, big chunks of the party and party leadership oftentimes align themselves with the dominant economic interests or themselves, you know, reluctant to push progressive change because of how it'll, you know, upset the people that finance campaigns. And I think you see this. And so I think you've seen the public get way out ahead of the Democratic Party. And, you know, even on the Republican side, even, you know, there are conservatives saying government isn't working. Now, I might disagree with them about why it isn't working. I might disagree with them about what it's going to take to make it work. But their gut instinct is correct, right? If you're lower income, if you're a person of color in this country, if you're worried about climate change and what's going to happen, government's not doing the job. And it's very hard for people in office to acknowledge that. For people who've been holding power under a certain campaign finance structure and with certain donors, it's hard for them to let let go of the past and, and reflect that, you know, politics as usual, business as usual, isn't going to give you the change you need. And so pressures like that take a very long time to build. But when they do build, they can be really overwhelming. And I think we're in the midst of that right now. I fear that this political season is going to get uglier even than we were used to. It's really crazy right now, the way it's going. You know, but at the same time, I, I don't know, I have a certain faith in the American people at the end of the day. So it's better that it's out there in public and we're debating it. And there are some candidates taking up that banner. Otherwise, it would be even worse. And you can see the politicians moving. You can really see them moving. You know, when I took office as mayor... Things like paid sick leave and increasing the minimum wage and marijuana legalization and really getting serious about climate, all of these things that were things that were kind of off the table in a lot of ways. Now they're on the table. So that's the good news. Yeah, it is tremendously exciting that we're having the conversations that we're having today as uncomfortable but as necessary as they might be. I totally agree. Despite reports about the economy starting to rebound Seattle's experiencing what I would call a crisis of homelessness, 20% higher than last year. I think it was 20% higher last year than the year before. And even in this winter season, there are people visibly living on our streets, some in tents, some with even less shelter than that. Why is there not being more done to address this problem, and where do you think our best chances lie to break this cycle of poverty and despair? Well, I mean, the roots of this are really deep. I mean, one is just the greatly increasing inequality for decades. The other is what we were talking about earlier, right, that urban areas are popular again. You know, the kind of the single room occupancy hotel and the low rent apartment and the, you know, the place where there was an inexpensive place to crash. They're disappearing as other people move in and buy up those places and, you know, put up more expensive accommodations. So these are really huge issues. I think, one, we've really got to loosen up how we provide housing in this city. I think we need to look at an emergency response to people on the street. I mean, it's it's very unpleasant, you know, to think that we essentially have economic refugees in this country. You know, they are refugees from the incredible inequality we face right now. We got to house them and we have to deal with that. And the sooner we do that, the, the better. So it, it's a problem that's been building for years. The federal government and the state government have been backing off of their commitments, not just to housing, but to social services and mental health services that is another reason why people find themselves on the street. 
and it turns to cities to try to step up to fill that gap. And part of what goes on is that mayors keep turning to those traditional sources of support, the state and the feds. I think in a rich city like Seattle, we've got to start looking to our own resources. And and that's a place where we can be a laboratory as well about how do we deal locally with the problems we face locally. My next question might be a left curve question or maybe a leftist question might be more accurate. (laughs) In my experience, community activists – we can be a very paranoid bunch. I've known people who are convinced that they're being followed or that their phones were tapped. And I think often they were exaggerating their own importance quite a bit. Yet during the opposition to the Iraq war and also with the Occupy movement, for example, we've seen surveillance and infiltration of groups by local state or government operatives. You were mayor and you must have been privy to some things that the rest of us have not. Did anything surprise you? How paranoid should community activists be? (laughs) You know, I don't have a good answer to that question about how paranoid you should be. I will say this. I mean, we had situations in Seattle where people came from out of town, you know, maybe they were from in town as well, to you know, smash windows on downtown streets. That's criminal yes, behavior. Yeah. And that's something that the police are going to you know, try to monitor and, and try to understand in advance. A lot of that is by monitoring social media or media. But they may take other actions and they don't necessarily tell the mayor when they do that. I'll, I'll right. give you another example. We had an operation to buy illegal guns off the street. By becoming a fence for stolen guns, we were able to arrest some of the worst offenders in the city who, who were making that market. You know, again, it's the nature of secret operations that they don't necessarily share it with people who aren't closely involved. And that includes the mayor, it turns out. Now, when you get at an even higher level, the FBI is not talking to a mayor, nor are other federal or state agencies going to share that. You know, it, it turns out they want to keep that secret even from us. So I think there is a concern. The city of Seattle had a person whose job it was to monitor secret activities of the police department, and there were very serious questions raised about whether they were doing an adequate job. So I think that's always a challenging thing because there are reasons, legitimate reasons, why law enforcement agencies you know, need to conceal their identities. And there are very illegitimate reasons for them to do so, as we well know, political reasons for them to do so. So how do you monitor that and how do you police that is always a tough question. So how paranoid should people be? Paranoid enough, I suppose, to call for good accountability for people. That makes sense to me. I recently heard an influential Seattleite proclaim on the radio uh, in an interview that that you were actually involved in, in terms of cannabis legalization, that Seattle will, quote, not be Amsterdam. I've been to Amsterdam a bunch of times. It's a wonderful city. I've been trying to wrap my mind around exactly what that means. Do you have a feeling for what that statement might mean as far as while well, Seattle won't be Amsterdam? you think it's a perception or a reality? Well, it's a funny thing. You know, it's, it's just reflective of this attitude people take towards legalization of marijuana, that there are some inherently negative things that, you know, and there are some that we need to be careful about. You know, I don't think we want kids smoking marijuana any more than we want them drinking or using tobacco. But having said that, you know, people have this image of marijuana, as I mentioned. I remember after legalization, I was contacted a few times by national media to talk about what was happening in in Seattle. And there was this image that, you know, everybody was going to be, you know, that the city was going to, you know, go to hell. And, And I had to point out to them, it's been essentially, it's been legal essentially legal here for a while. 
And the city's booming. We've got some of the most creative people in the world. We've got some of the most excellent entrepreneurs. Crime's, you know, we got crime's big down, businesses. Right? Yeah, crime was down during my term. And lots of great things were happening in the city. We had our challenges, but a lot of people looked to Seattle and saw our success. So it's, it's just a, it's a brand of silliness, and it's a you know, kind of a reefer madness view of marijuana that's very outdated. But it still exists. It does still exist for a lot of people. So, you know, that's just something we're going to have to continue to, you know, to prove that, you know, responsible adults can behave responsibly. Sounds like I still have some job security then. I'm speaking <laughs> I with so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Mike McGinn on Canvas Radio. We're going to take another quick pause for the cause. Come back. My last question for Mike McGinn. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we are back for the final segment of Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio with former Seattle Mayor Mike McGinn. Mike, in your eyes, what can the average citizen do to help their local government? There's just so much animosity and criticism and stuff these days in our society. Is there anything that we can do as citizens to contribute to the process of making our cities or towns a better place to live that's really not sufficiently happening right now? Oh, what a great question. I personally... I don't know if I'm the best person to ask. I got involved in my neighborhood in trying to get sidewalks built so we could walk around safely and trying to, you know, make sure that as Greenwood grew that we did so in a, you know, it was a good walkable community. We got good transit. One thing led to another. I just got more and more engaged. I always found it really meaningful. I liked interacting with my neighbors. And one of the things I really liked about neighborhood work was that it wasn't divisive. It wasn't partisan. I didn't know whether somebody was a Republican or a Democrat or who they wanted for president. 
because we shared common concerns around walkability, around good schools, around safety, public safety, good police responses. And I think that just, you know, getting out of your house and getting involved in some way is the simplest thing you can do. Taking on a leadership role, however small, in a community organization or a PTA, anything like that, you know, that's where democracy happens, with a little d, little d democracy happens. And that's where we need it to happen. And I think people build the skills to work with each other and have an understanding of some of our challenges and get better at holding elected officials accountable. So I know that sounds really Pollyanna-ish, but just get out of the house, meet other people, pick something you care about, because that means you'll keep going back to it, and get involved. You know, be skeptical of government, hold them accountable, push them hard, and don't let them get away with business as usual. You have a podcast. Is it You, Me, Us Now with Mike McGinn on iTunes? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I interview people who try to change things in the world. And it's really fun. It's fun for me, at least. You know, I talk to people who, you know, how they get involved in activism. You know, what do they work on? How do they do their work? And it's something I, I really invite other activists to listen to. Maybe they'll learn a thing or two. And I invite regular folks to learn. They'll learn more about an issue. Maybe they'll get inspired to take something on. Because there's something in common with every activist I've spoken to. At some point, they decided to do what I said earlier which is, you know what, I'm going to act on my beliefs in some small way. And usually one thing leads to another, and they find some courage, they find some support, they find some inspiration to do some hard things. And they're really fascinating people to talk to. Mayor McGinn, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on Hemp Present. I want to apologize for any stress and anxiety that Hemp Fest caused you <laughs> when you were in charge of this city. I know it must be quite a handful for anybody, and I, I actually think of those kind of things. <laughs> well, you know, you guys were pushing hard, and Hemp Fest was so successful that you outgrew your space, and that created a lot of issues as to how to accommodate it. Success. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think we always found a way to, at the end of the day, you know, to try to meet everybody's concerns. So it's really an amazing, amazing event and and an amazing legacy you've created, Viv. Thank you so much, Mike. You take care and be well, and I'll check your podcast out. Thank you. Now I want to get to a weekly feature here presented on CannabisRadio.com. It's the quote of the week, and here it is. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And that is from American politician and educational reformer Horace Mann. That concludes this installment of Hempresent on Canada's radio. Email me at hempresent at gmail.com. I want to thank my power peeps in the control room, Hannah and Brasco, and all the Cannabis Radio sponsors and advertisers. Join me next week for some more cannabis confabulation and reefer repartee with some hempy hero on a journey for justice because when it comes to prohibition, you have the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find yours and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Until then, my friends, stay strong, stand tall, and toke it easy. And don't forget to email me at hempresent at gmail.com. The Hempresent theme song, Take Back the Plan, is performed by Stickerbush and sung by a much younger version of myself. Turn up the music, maestro. I'm out. Marijuana! The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. 
Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.